Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. If you have any last words, now is the time. I believe you might be missing the greater point of the show, Paladin Butters. Yeah, I know. Winter is coming and there's dragons and zombies on the way. I'm pretty excited for that. Broadcasting from the bowels of the Red Keep, a king's road away from a fallen Winterfell and their wintry exile of Castle Black, you're listening to The Night is Dark and Full of Spoilers with Maester Daniel and Ben of House Garrett. Lord of Oxford and Warden of North Mississippi and other things that sound cool and stuff. For the night is dark and full of... Spoilers. It's it's full of spoilers and stuff. The night is dark and full of... Spoilers! I keep watching that show and I'm still waiting for the darn dragons to show up and, and kick everyone's butts. Dracorus, the Mad Queen is here. And no, we didn't need Masande's beheading to figure it out. This is The Night is Dark and Full of Spoilers. I'm Ben of House Garrett, Lord of Oxford, Warden of North Mississippi. He's Maester Daniel on loan from the Citadel. And today we're reviewing Season 8, Episode 4 of Game of Thrones. And full disclosure, before we get going here, Maester Daniel and I, in preparing for this podcast, struggled to come up with many high points. Me personally, I don't want to spend an hour crapping all over something all of us love, and I know there are a lot of you who kind of dug the episode, and that's awesome. We all consume media in our own way. There's no right or wrong here, but we've got some thoughts, and we'll do our best. Deep breath, Maester Daniel. Yes, apparently randomizing character motivations and poor writing and shock value for the sake of shock value are of greater importance than sticking in the landing with coherent storytelling for one half of the writing team of X-Men Origins, Wolverine and Troy... Crap, I'm already breaking my own rules. Here we go. Up first, it's Cinder Raven, Maester Daniel's quick hit evaluation of Season 8, Episode 4 of Thrones. Maester Daniel. I mean, I wasn't a big fan of it. They absolutely did what you just said. They, they went for shock storytelling. It's M. Night Shyamalan storytelling. Yeesh. Having Euron come out of nowhere again to kill a dragon. Jon Snow just rode a dragon, what, twice? Total time, and... We've been waiting years for that, and we got two episodes of it, and then they kill him. They literally put a line in there that said, yeah, I'm riding a horse. He doesn't need me on his back. What do you weigh, 170 pounds? He's nothing, too. He's a, he's a dragon. We, we said it when we started doing these things, and they announced that the last two seasons would be 13 episodes. We said, and many others said, how are they going to wrap this story up? How are they going to get all these characters together? And look, they had a monumental task, and they're just, they didn't earn the moments they're trying to make pay off because they did it in so few episodes. And I understand they had a lot more than just not having source material. They had HBO concerns, they had 
huge battles to coordinate because you know the, as as we gotten off of source material the battles became more important because all of our main characters were involved and they got away with it in the earlier seasons by not showing battles like the battle of whispering wood one of the more famous battles rob stark became a good commander we saw the aftermath we didn't see the actual battle so you know i understand they had a, a task but they just they made a mess of things uh in season seven and season seven and eight have been uh just have been unfortunate I'm happy that uh, it's ending as opposed to stretching it out like some other shows. I asked Maester Daniel before we recorded if he'd play the good cop as best he could. I'm going to tell you right now, I hated that episode of Game of Thrones. <laughs> I absolutely hated it. But I'm trying to find some good bowls of brown and some bad bowls of brown. I'm trying to be fair, and Maester Daniel didn't make me any promises, but he'll try. With that, it's time mm-hmm. for Flea Bottom Corner where I nitpick Game of Thrones and serve my bowls of brown, good, and bad for the latest episode. These aren't really nitpicks, though, but whatever, you decide. A good bowl of brown. You're heading to King's Landing? Some unfinished business. Me too. I don't plan on coming back. Neither do I. You gonna leave me to die again if I get hurt? Probably. <laughs> the Hound and Arya riding off together worked for me. This is one of, if not the best, pairings in show history. The two love each other in their own unique way. The Hound fought for Arya. It was Arya who drew him out in the long night when he was all but lost. Where they're headed isn't all that hard to forecast. The Hound is singularly focused now. Even if he doesn't realize it yet, maybe he does, I don't know. He's destined to kill his brother, the zombified right. mountain. Interesting here is Arya could help too. Remember, the mountain is on her list. Would you shut up? I can't sleep until I say the names. The names of every person in Westeros. Only the ones I'm going to kill. <laughs> it's as good a thing as any to keep a person going. Better than most. We come across my brother. Maybe we can both cross a name off a list. There's a theory out there, maybe it's a spoiler, but this is the night is dark and full of spoilers, that the Hound will kill his brother, then ride off to one of the vacated lands and build a house to live out the rest of his days. He's been trying to escape this killing life all throughout the story, only to be drawn back in. He did find his escape with Septon Ray and the community of the Seven. He was at peace so much as the Hound can be at peace, chopping wood. So, Maester Daniel... Where are our beloved killing duo headed? King's Landing. I don't know if it's going to be at the battle or during the battle because time is working against us here uh, when it comes to stories. They could be in King's Landing when John gets there. They could be trying to throw us a swerve somewhere, but I don't think they're going to do that. I think they're going to go for Arya infiltrating King's Landing somewhere and assassinating or trying to assassinate the queen, the head of the snake. Maybe she gets Jamie, too. Jamie inexplicably is going back there. My first bad bowl of brown. Tyrion suggesting Danny and a handful of her remaining unsullied march to King's Landing to demand Cersei's surrender. They were in no position to make such a demand. Danny just took another massive L. She lost Rhaegal, most of her fleet of ships. Her army decimated at Winterfell by the Army of the Dead. If they hang back and strategize, 
they at least buy Masande some time. She isn't executed in front of them. But Danny heads up there anyway with like what sixty soldiers in Drogon. No, I don't, I don't, I don't even know who's chilling in the corner is Drogon, which begs the question: Why doesn't Cersei just kill them right there? She had fifteen scorpions pointed at him. This right. is the woman who blew up the Sept of Baylor, a place of right. Russia. Knowing what you know about Cersei Lannister, does she care about an honorable fight on formal terms? No. She's already had her fleet sneak attack Daenerys like five times now. So why why would it be out of character for her to unleash the scorpions? I mean, the dragon's going to go crazy anyway, but you can kill dragons now. So who cares? You said it at the beginning. There's no way around it. They have just decided to go for not shock storytelling, but what would be unexpected? What would be something that the boards haven't thought of? What has Reddit not figured out yet? Well, if you foreshadow something, of course people are going to pick up on it. And in the internet age, other people are going to notice. And it doesn't, it's not that hard. It's why we have this podcast, why we have the theories that have been out there for two decades. But George R. R. Martin said the same thing. He said, you got to, you know, it's got to go somewhere, but they don't adhere to those rules. They just do whatever they want to do. They make things like John taking a horse after literally having dialogue that said, you've ruined horses for me for good after riding a dragon, which was his first time riding a dragon that should have confirmed to her that, okay, he's special, which makes this whole heel turn that Daenerys is doing even more ridiculous. It goes back. Yeah, Cause to one of your said. criticisms was, or one of the answers to my questions was you think Daenerys knows she kind of already knew. No, yeah. she obviously in the show did not know. Didn't put the pieces together. Didn't, didn't put the pieces together. He's the second person to ride a dragon and they just were so flippant about it. People can make fun of the guys who are mad that John didn't pet ghosts. And that's fine because, you know, ghosts really doesn't matter in the show. Maybe that's them talking about how crazy the fan base is now. I don't think these guys are that stupid, but they could be. They make, um, they're making general jokes nine years in. Cersei rules almost oh, exclusively by fear of which the mountain is the walking embodiment. It's so dumb. I've gotten some pushback on this, but Ben... Ramsay and John's sides met before the Battle of the Bastards. Stannis and Renly met. This is how it's done. Blah, blah, blah. Doesn't wash with me. Cersei has no honor. She never has. She only cares about keeping power and protecting her house and claim. But they've written themselves in a corner there, too, because why would anyone in King's Landing be loyal to Cersei? She blew up the Catholic Church of which 95% of the South is. And that's not me and book canon. That's me and what the show shows. That was one of the big deals about Stannis. You mentioned Stannis like two seconds ago. Stannis burning the seven and have drawn the burning sword to become Lightbringers. How Melisandre got introduced to us. It's like, they, again, they don't watch their own show or they just don't care. And I think it's a little bit of both. It had been more consistent with her character if she had followed her father Tywin, the schemer behind the Red Wedding, and taking out the threat by whatever means necessary. Do you disapprove? I'm off for cheating. This is war. But to slaughter them at a wedding, explain to me why it is more noble to kill 10,000 men in battle than a dozen at dinner. So that's why you did it? To save lives? To end the war. To protect the family. That would have been more consistent. Cersei's played the game better than anyone, really. She's the smart one. And you know what this is. The writer's leveling the playing field to try to trick you into thinking maybe just maybe Cersei will win. Can we finally all just accept here that we're dealing with careless planning and poor writing at this point? 
Cersei's not going to win. She was never going to win. But instead of accepting that reality and riding for its inevitability, Benioff and Weiss picked apart Danny and her army for the sake of subverting expectations or something. <laughs> Problem is, all they accomplished was making Danny and all her advisors and allies look like idiots at every turn. They're the worst strategists ever. And I've been trying to wrap my brain around this for a few days. This is why the podcast has been delayed. And this is the best I've got. Her relationship <laughs> this, is what you've with, come, this is what you've come up with. This is it. Her relationship with Tyrion is more layered than we've seen so far. It's weak because the brother she's always claimed to hate and resent would be a small sacrifice in the grand scheme of things. She'd win the war in an afternoon and rule until she's old and gray. Tyrion twice gave Cersei an opportunity to kill him, but didn't. I, I, don't, I don't know. Maybe they came to some sort of agreement in their conversation that happened off-screen in Season 7, but again, and as has been a consistent criticism by you, the conversation happened off-screen. So we, the fans, are left to fill in the gaps. You know what else happened off-screen? Masande's capture. Ben, we didn't get to see Tyrion's reaction to who Jon Snow really was. We didn't get to see Sansa's. We didn't get to see Arya's. After all these years, give the audience what they want sometimes is not a bad thing. And I don't know why people all of a sudden think that some natural storytelling is bad or doing what people expect is bad. Like if you would, well, if you don't go along with what they're doing, that you're some kind of hater, you're nitpicking. That's not the case. Why? I, no, but this is the thing. Why would? Why are you paying Sophie Turner and Macy Williams any money? All this money, if you're not going to show them the bombshell of all bombshells, Jon Snow being Aegon Targaryen is just going to be this kind of oh, okay, sure. I think Jon just gives it up and goes becomes a nomad. I don't know what they're doing. And aside here, Cersei having Masande executed was stupid anyway. Here's a crazy idea. If Cersei wants to keep Danny from burning down the Red Keep, keep her best friend in the Red Keep right beside you. I love Game of Thrones. I wanted to make that abundantly clear. But the only way to love it at this point is just to let it be silly. It's, I don't think it's silly. I think it's just um, these guys and the actors themselves, and they just they were ready to get out. And there were some interviews that some of the Cassio where it just seemed like it was fake when they were praising what this season was going to be like. And I thought it was just people being paranoid on the internet. But now, in retrospect, they probably knew, too. They made a mess. They they didn't know how to handle the mystical aspects of it. They wanted to just clear the deck to make it the main Cersei, Daenerys, John triangle. And who would sit? And I don't think it's going to be any of it. I think that's going to be the real twist the the uh, m night Shyamalan twist that i see dead people is that it won't be there won't be a iron throne answer me this the theme of the entire story is actions have consequences ned Correct. lost his head rob lost his army all because mm-hmm. of their actions and in that vein the night king attacking king's landing and killing cersei would have been consistent she deserves nothing better then he raises cersei and her army of the dead to join them, they attack Winterfell from the south. Episode 3 effectively ends the series. They tie it all up with the Night King falling and the ramifications of that afterwards. You can't even catch your breath from the literal long night without them killing another dragon. He survives his dead brother and he gets killed direct, the directly next episode. You can't give that kind of weight and expect those moments to hit when they're that close together. 
especially after such an existential threat, death itself, everything else. We talked about it last week. We said how cheap it would feel. That's why it feels so cheap. Masande is the only person that gets captured from those people. Everybody else washes up on shore, and they just kind of just stroll up to the castle. Why didn't Euron follow? He could have ended the war right there on Dragonstone. They were just ready to get. They were ready to get out from underneath it. So they went for soap opera kind of over the top style drama, drama for drama's sake. I told you I wasn't going to do an hour of crapping all over this episode. I'm uh-huh. being true to my word. Good right. Boulder Brown. Arya's arc is interesting. Gendry proposes, becoming the latest victim of someone confusing good sex with love. He wants Arya to be his lady, which was a nice callback, I thought, to season three. The last time they were together, Arya told Gendry she could be his family. He essentially tells her, no, you'd be my lady, and rejects her to join the Brotherhood Without Banners. Arya then returns the favor here. Be my wife. Be the lady of Storm's End. You'll be a wonderful lord, and any lady would be lucky to have you. But I'm not a lady. I never have been. That's not me. Call back to Ned in season one, Nymeria in season seven. Arya is supposed to be out in the wild. Having said that, it's somewhat problematic for Arya, who was always in search of family, to somewhat go against her rediscovery of her humanity, her entire arc of the last three seasons. She's not just a trained killer anymore. But for an episode filled with real problems, I was okay. That's nitpicky, but Maester Daniel, is Gendry's story done? Seems like it, as does uh, Sam and Gilly's. I think Sam and Gilly might get some epilogue stuff if they're doing an epilogue style, but they're going to need people. And uh, House Baratheon is a um, offshoot of House Targaryen. I mean, the one who founded House Baratheon, Oris Baratheon, was rumored to be a Targaryen bastard. That's why Robert had a claim to the throne, because his grandmother was a Targaryen. You know, it still has old legacy feel, but it's Gendry who's, who's grounded. It does. It wouldn't surprise me if Arya went and married him, because, I mean, she can do whatever she wants now. She could go be an assassin. She could go knit as an ironic twist. She likes to do home stuff. That will be a funny way to, if you're looking to, like you said, subvert expectations, have her want to become a housewife. That's funny. You mentioned Sam as a potential epilogue guy, but could Sam and Gilly be headed to Horn Hill? I mean, Sam could rule, which would be a nice bit of symmetry, if not confusing. But yeah, he may be on the uh, some kind of council, grand council, parliament style this Whatever. is going to end with the throne being burned down and democracy coming into its place. Probably it? democracy or something, something parliamentary, monarchy with a figurehead. Honestly, if they made Daenerys figurehead, that would be an ironic way. She'd get the Iron Throne, but it would just be as a figurehead. She would finally get what she really wants, but it would, she would have no power. She would be reported on by crappy British tabloids. Well, the reason I bring up Hornhill is because Sam's cruel father, Randall, sent Sam to Castle Black because he was ashamed of him, viewed Sam as unfit to lead his proud house. But Sam's brother Dickon died beside his father, burned alive by Danny for not bending the knee. Mad Queen! Sam has far and away the best claim of anyone. If he does go back to Hornhill, that would be cool. I would only hope, though, if that did happen, 
he found heart pain. I think that Daenerys has heart pain. I think that's that's going to King's Landing or wherever whoever has the sword. They might just forget about it, Ben. We never see heart pain again. Valerian still doesn't matter anymore. So. Yeah. Yeah. Bad Bowler Brown. You mentioned it already. We have to address it here, and I've got a lot of thoughts. <laughs> poor, poor Rhaegal. Because reasons, he's dead. Euron shot him down with a scorpion on a boat. Euron was three for three shooting at a moving jetliner, but his scorpion and the 30 others aimed at Drogon, coming right at them, couldn't connect once. Not once. And here's an idea for Daenerys Targaryen, breaker of chains and all that. Maybe fly around their ships and burn them all. They cannot turn around. Remember when Bronn needed three tries to hit Drogon once in the loot train attack? And he only had a successful hit because Drogon was literally coming right at him and his firing platform was stable. This whole thing with Rhaegal, I know it's going to sound like I'm just bitching, but if you can't see the reasoning, I don't know what to tell you. This was straight up plot trash. Varys is the master of whispers, Daniel. He knows what you had for breakfast, but he can't He's tell useless. you... He's He's been useless for two seasons. He can't tell you when an entire fleet of ships is moving and doesn't know about the development of dragon-killing weapons, Danny or her advisors didn't think to send out scouts. She These scout are the herself. same people who didn't think about the crypts despite the Night King literally being able to raise people from the dead, so maybe, but gosh, it's such a stretch to do this. They make them willfully incompetent. Cersei, who was just a dumb drunk, who did her shame walk, gets Quiburn and it turns into she turns into a genius. And then she gets your on Greyjoy, the fastest shipbuilder in all of America or Westeros. With no trees on the Iron Islands. But you're using logic that That's that's they, really nitpicky. I'll give you that. That's they, just don't, they don't even they don't even they don't even care about that anymore. You know, I said it, we didn't mind it. But how does Daenerys forget about the Iron Fleet? How many times is she going to get ambushed by the same people? How many times is Tyrion going to be dumb after being smart? But you know, before you get to the point, which I know you're about to bring up, and back to your point about Varys, they have made Varys and Tyrion, we talked about how much those two guys' storylines have suffered, have been the, the worst recipients of the last two seasons and how short they've been. It's what they did, it's what they did to Sansa in season five. It's that bad, minus the obvious rape scene. Rhaegal couldn't perform a single evasive maneuver. Danny was a mile in the air. From her vantage point, it stretches belief for even a world of resurrected people and the dragons and magic that she wouldn't spot a fleet of 30 enemy ships. It's my whole Jurassic World argument. How did no one in Dragonstone spot them and, and, warn, yeah. and, warn, and warn the fleet? I accept in Jurassic World that dinosaurs exist again. So don't then have a woman outrunning the T-Rex in high heels. That's a simple example. You accept things in these worlds, so the logic leaps you take to get to your plot mechanics can't be so obvious. You mentioned it. Benioff said in the inside the episode that Danny, and I quote, forgot about the Iron Fleet. Okay, Mm -hmm. here's the problem. Mm -hmm. While Danny kind of forgot about the Iron Fleet and Euron's forces, they certainly haven't forgotten about her. And the Golden Company has arrived in King's Landing, courtesy of the Greyjoy fleet. The balance has grown distressingly even. 
How do you even justify me? <laughs> yeah. You'd think they'd have learned, I don't know, after her Navy was ambushed by the same enemy fleet in Season 7. But my gosh, that's just one example. They, they, they talk about how they, they mentioned, barely mentioned Dorne. We talked about it, how they would just avoid it altogether. They said there was a new prince in Dorne and she declared for Daenerys, where are their troops then? Where are they? <laughs> They've just got to make Euron a threat. That's all this is. Euron is able to shoot... A dragon from behind a mountain. He took out. He's took. He's taken out the Iron Islands, Dorne, and the Reach. Uh, and the Reach. We talked about how dumb that storyline was, and how they ruined house after house. Why would anybody support Cersei at this point? Nobody. Where, where, who is? Where is Cersei's support? How is Varys, who has been the master through every Targaryen king through Aerys? They brought it. Aerys didn't trust anybody. Which is how he became master of whispers in the first place is because Ares was so paranoid. He survived some of the most volatile times in Westerosry history. His little bird just go over to Quabra, a nobody. He was a nobody. He was traveling with uh, Sir Gregor and all those men. Rob Stark saved Kyburn. Yeah. Somehow, it's just funny Quyburn to think a- about Danny and the dragons on a bright, cloudless, sunny day from a mile in the air, not spotting ships. I told Daniel earlier this week, we probably should skip the pod this week, but y'all hit me up on Twitter. Y'all wanted it, and I appreciate it. I really do. I love that y'all want to hear our take on this. Can't really excuse this one, man. You can't do it. They literally could have just mentioned Ferris's spies are saying that the fleet was still in King's Landing. Euron's forces were small enough to slip out unnoticed, but the problem with that is the little things matter to us. They're why we've gotten so immersed in the story to begin with. But the little things don't matter anymore in a rushed season with pacing problems and logic and plot leaps. You just have to accept them. But for a story that has been built on subverting that, those tropes, it's hard for me to accept that. Danny and her advisors are idiots. That's the problem. Your army is destroyed. I, I got Okay, I'm, I'm going to get on my soapbox real quick. And I promise... We've you promised you wouldn't do it. You promised you wouldn't do it. But I know. You went but ahead and did it anyway. Went ahead and did it anyway. Your army is destroyed, and all its survivors are wounded. Your dragons are temporarily, at least, crippled. Your enemy has the strongest navy in the world, which has already snuck up on you twice. A fortified position with anti-air defenses and a city full of hostages. Now, on the plus side, you have at your disposal an omnipotent tree god, a face-swapping, unstoppable assassin who can kill literally anyone she wants to, the support of at least two additional thriving kingdoms and absolutely no rush whatsoever. So what do you do? Immediately turn around to start fighting again, split your forces in half, make no attempt to gather reinforcements, leave behind your two strongest assets, make a beeline for the capital, while forgetting about the enemy navy, losing one dragon, one advisor, and your entire navy, then march your queen, surviving advisor, and general up to the walls of King's Landing with 60-ish men, if we're being generous, to protect them and just rely on Cersei frickin' Lannister's strong moral compass to not murder you then and there? That's your plan? They made Tyrion stupid. 
Tyrion hasn't since he rolled out of that box on Essos has been a shell of what he was. But he won the, when he won the Emmy. He made the speech about how I should have let Stannis kill you all, murder you all. He was the all. best. And uh, he deserved that win because he did great. And from since he got smuggled over the narrow sea, it's been um, a series of blunders for him and Varys. Teleporting Varys, <sighs> who set up one of the greatest alliances of all time, only to have Cersei out somehow outmaneuver him. What was the point of him showing up at Dorne to speak with not only the Dornish, but also House Tyrell? To unite the Reach and Dorne was a huge deal and because they'd been at war for it. And then they didn't. They both got taken out immediately yeah, just, by House Tarly. And, okay. 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 We got to get to some book stuff as it plays into the big picture. So a good-ish bowl of brown. I'm really reaching. I'm trying. The Scorpions, yes, are cheesy. They're wonky. But there is Westerosi historical precedent for taking down a dragon with a scorpion-type projectile weapon. Right. Aegon the Conqueror, and this is where I need your input, and his sisters slash wives, Visenya and Rhaenys, took Westeros, Mm -hmm. but the invasion wasn't flawless. Speaking specifically, Rhaenys' pursuit of Dorne's fealty ultimately led to his dragon, Meraxxus, dying by way of a scorpion shot to the eye, correct? Yes. She was um, his favorite wife. She was uh, beautiful, and she carried a Valyrian steel sword, just like her and her brother did, and her other sister did. When they tried to conquer Dorne, they had flown from place to place, and um, they only encountered old people and no no people, no resources available to them. And the elderly would say the same thing. They would, they would be silent. They would, they would go to death because they were ready to die. And they finally, uh, Rhaenys flew to Sunspear, and the old Lady Martell was sitting on her throne, and she said, what will you do to bend the knee? And she said, um, we, we don't bend here. Your dragons will come to the desert to die. And then she repeated House Martell's words, which were unbent, unbowed, unbroken, which was great. They thought they were going to be able to. They thought they had tricked some of the, the Reach, which is the, the, the marshes where the Dornish March meets the Reach and the beginning of the Great Plains where uh, House Tyrell rules. They convinced some of them to go against the Dornish. They had more in common with the um, people of King's Landing, really, than they do the Dornish. And so Rhaenys started flying down there to try to get some of these other houses to get in line from the great houses, and she got shot by a bolt while she was on Meraxxus and killed Meraxxus and landed. And, um, they went and burned a bunch of castles in retaliation. I mean, Aegon was furious and killed a lot of Dornish elderly, but the Dornish never the Dornish never bent. And it's one of the tales of their ferocity. And we can say all this, and we haven't seen anything from Dorne since they botched it so badly. So there yeah. were signs that they were going to be able to do this at the beginning. Scorpions, though, it's not like an original idea. They have some stuff for the dragons in the upcoming Battle of Marine when they're in Dance of Dragons, which will be Winds of Winter. So. Meanwhile, in present-day Westeros, <laughs> dragons aren't strong. The scales... No are described as harder than steel in the books. In the show, they're easily penetrable. Taken from a Game of Thrones history book given to me by one Maester Daniel, Morian Martell essentially did the same thing as Euron. He mounted scorpions on boats in an effort to repeat the feat of slaying dragons and to gain more power for House Martell against the Targaryens. 
He missed a lot, and a few shots glanced off the scales of the dragons. And yet here, Rhaegal, three for three, through the neck, in the side, in the wing. Yep. It's nothing to take down a dragon now. In this world, especially the early season, they talked about Aegon the Conqueror and how he conquered with dragons. They talked about how great dragons were. They didn't give you the innate detail, the intimate detail that George R. R. Martin gives about it. And it's more historically what dragons are like in high fiction. You know, you can only shoot them through the eye, just like in Tolkien. It's a nod to Tolkien's dragons. But otherwise, they're nigh indestructible. They're smart and they're vicious. This is the thing. You just, and I hate to keep harping on it, but it makes the Night King able to kill them cheap too, because now it makes him less of a threat. It makes him even more of just a asset to get to where we are now to make Cersei the bad guy. Because now that's two dragons. And not only do we see Jon Snow, Aegon Targaryen, uh, mount a dragon, only do it once, get knocked off the dragon, get saved by Daenerys, but to have that dragon killed like the very next episode. It's just, it feels so cheap. A good really. bowl of brown. Man, I'm stretching it. Really stretching it. I acknowledge <laughs> the rushed nature of Danny's turn in the final season. They packed four episodes worth of plot in 30 minutes of episode four. They would have benefited greatly with additional episodes. HBO was willing to give it to them, but this is what I think they, they just wanted out. Yeah, yeah, they just this is what they wanted. Okay, fine. That's not the good bullet brown. This is the good bullet brown. Even despite the rush nature and horrid pacing of this season and last, there's plenty of evidence of Danny's descent into madness. You've mentioned before that in the books, Targaryens are described as being a coin flip. And we see here in this episode, Danny, the daughter of the Mad King, in isolation. The Great War is over. Jorah's gone. Varys is off the hype train and headed to Team John. Tyrion probably isn't far behind. Masande's dead. She's down two of three dragons. Grey Worm is really it for her as far as allies, true and pledged to her is concerned, but he's on a John Wick revenge warpath now. There is a well-done moment, though, in the Great Hall of Winterfell early on in the episode. Everyone is celebrating the defeat of the dead. Danny is at the table. She might as well have been there by herself. The camera, like, zooms in on her face. It's focused on her face. Then she meets with John in a room. They kiss and all that, but ultimately, her inevitably tragic story begins to take shape. I wish you'd never told me. If I didn't know, I'd be happy right now. I try to forget. Tonight I did for a while. And then I saw them gathered around you. I saw the way they looked at you. I know that look. So many people have looked at me that way, but never here. Never on this side of the sea. I told you I don't want it. It doesn't matter what you want. You didn't want to be king in the north. What happens when they demand you press your claim and take what is mine? So here we go, Maester Daniel. Her story is telegraphed to be a tragedy. She'd have gone mad probably a marine without her advisor. She'll lose everything she has in order to claim the Iron Throne. And once she does, she'll die for it as well. Because I don't think there's any way now that Johnny or Danny will sit on the Iron Throne. John has always done what needs to be done to protect innocence, even if it cost him his own life or his love. He betrayed Egret for the Night's Watch. He went to kill Mance to save Westeros. So Danny's tragic story arc, that's where this is headed. Correct. 
she's gonna she's gonna end up dying. She turns into the Mad Queen, and I think John or Arya will have to kill her. See a few true nitpicks. Roasting the Tarleys was rough, but Danny hasn't really done anything particularly rash or sadistic this season. If anything, moments in which her dark side, if we want to call it that, I have no better term for it, seem to be coming out, like the banquet hall encounter with Gendry. Those turned out to be savvy graciousness. If you want a true nitpick, Danny should betray Tyrion. She agreed to more of his dumb plans, which led to one of her dragons getting killed and Masande being publicly executed. But you mentioned it, not earning it. That's where some length to this season, to last season, the further descent into madness that had been hinted at early in the series, both in the books and in the movies, movies, shows, it, it would have served them well. Yeah, and it just didn't give them the emotional weight, and especially the deaths of Masande and Rhaegal, which should both have been felt more viscerally, became cheap because they came, they came so quickly after Viserion. We didn't have time to really mourn Viserion and think about how horrible it was that he was dead until the very next episode where his brother dies. And now we only have one dragon. It's obvious they just didn't want to get into the magic and the magical elements the mystical elements, the esoteric stuff. They've kind of just abandoned Bran. I really don't even know what they're going to do with him now. I mean, I guess he's just useless. It's obvious that's the way they're just ready to get that taken care of and get that out of the way. I'm about to get on my soapbox again, even though I felt like I've been on this my soapbox. You see, here we go. Second time on the soapbox. Okay. All right. On Talk of Champions on Tuesday, Bunky Perkins joined me as the co-host. We talked about a lot of things. At the end of it, talked about Game of Thrones. You got the, the first, Bunky Perkins. The, the Bunky Perkins. And you got the first taste of my disgust in John not saying a proper goodbye to Ghost. You would be mad. You would yeah. be mad about yeah. that. And you can tell me I'm dumb. That's fine. But I actually typed this one out, so follow me here. Okay. What happened to John's connection to Ghost? In seven seasons of Game of Thrones, John has manned the wall at Castle Black, ventured beyond the wall, faced off and encountered thousands of wildlings, stared death in the face at Hardhome, been murdered by his brothers of the Night's Watch, been resurrected, battled the Bolton forces for Winterfell, was named King in the North, galvanized the Northern Houses, and brought Danny and her forces into the fold to fight the Army of the Dead, and they won. And who was there every step of the way? Ghost. He saved Sam, who saved Jorah, who saved Danny. Direwolves and Starks have a spiritual bond laid out in far more detail and with far more significance in the novels. But in the show, the most we've seen of the relationship between the Starks and their direwolves is Bran briefly working into summer to go on a recon mission in season three or four. I can't remember. It was Ghost who warned John of a reanimated member of the Night's Watch trying to murder Lord Commander Mormont in the first season. The director of the episode said they couldn't do it because of CGI. Dude, you have two people riding dragons. You have thousands upon thousands of fake people killing each other in battle. Dead skeletons attacking the living. Just give me a break with this. Do it like Batista in Guardians of the Galaxy when he's petting Rocket with some dude sitting in for Rocket in a green suit. Ghost was the last connection to the fantasy elements of the plot. But more than that, his significance is far greater than just being John's house pet. He's inarguably his closest confidant. And he represents House Targaryen, too. When they first find the direwolf cubs, they find him away. They've driven, the other puppies have driven Ghost away. John finds him alone. Theon wants to put him down because he's the runt. 
and he's uh, albino with red eyes. If that's not obvious symbolism, then I don't know what is. And that's what everybody says is that starts basically foreshadows the war of the five Kings is them finding the direwolf cups and each one of them, same number of Stark children, including Jon Snow, which means that they were all supposed to play an important part together in the end story, which is what it's about. Arya said it in the woods, you know, we're the last Starks alive and they all separate again. We don't trust your queen. You don't know her yet. I'll never know her. She's not one of us. If you only trust the people you grow up with, you won't make many allies. That's all right. I don't need many allies. Ah, yeah. We're family. The four of us. The last of the Starks. I've never been a Stark. And you are. Just as much Ned Stark's child as any of us. You're my brother. Not my half-brother or my bastard brother. My brother. It just doesn't give those moments weight when they have so rapidly moved through these plot points. It's like they're hitting the bullet points and then they just um, they move on. They don't really um, allow the audience to really catch their breath. Pet the dog! <laughs> yes, and that's the, and it comes down to they just, um, it shows that they, they don't, they really don't care or they're incompetent and don't care, which is probably more accurate. John is a terrible pet owner. He's terrible. Mm-hmm. His horse died in the Battle of the Bastards, so I mean, why would we even... I mean, he's, you know, why would you want to sit underneath Jon Snow or be beside Jon Snow? You're doomed. You're doomed. You're, doomed. You're a doomed animal. All right. Good bowl of brown. Even though I feel like all my good bowls of brown have been descended. Bad. They turned out into... to be bad. Well, the yeah. brown is brown. It could be pigeon, brat. It could be whatever. Yeah, we don't really know what's in brown, but... You take a bite, if it's good, good, but it can be bad even when it's supposed to be good. A good bowl of brown. You're going to laugh, but I mentioned last week erasing the Night King threat, in effect, gets Game of Thrones back to what it does well, political entry. So a semi-redeeming quality of Episode 4 is it got back to politics, including the reintroduction of Tyrion and Varys, dumb as they may be, and they're talking and strategizing. I had less of a problem with episode four than I did with episode three. Wow. Being honest, I mean, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wanted to come really on this did. podcast, and the first thing I say is, I apologize for every bad thing I said about episode three, because at least that one's rewatchable. Mm-mm. I don't I don't even apologize for it, though, because all of the criticisms are fair. Even people who love that episode and listen to this podcast, one of them being political junkie, said that was a fair critique. You can't acknowledge that it's a fair critique and then say I'm nitpicking. So episode three, still same beefs with it, but it's a far better episode of spectacle and fun television than this was. This was a disaster to me. But you're good. You're better with this than last week. The tone reminds me of Game of Thrones, what Game of Thrones is good at. They hit their wheelhouse is when... You have characters like Arya and the Hound, who have obvious chemistry together. John and Daenerys had obvious chemistry together, and we're not going to get that. Their relationship's going to last for what? Let's say 10 total when they first met. Let's say when they first met until, um, who I, was, I think it's pretty inevitable that she's the one that's going to die. If one of them's going to die. They took what was, should have been you know, a multi-episode arc. Multi-layered relationship over over if you had done 20 episodes as opposed to 13 you had seven extra hours of television or seven odd some odd let's say 10 more hours of television then uh yeah that would have been far more believable but now it's gonna feel hollow it's still a bummer to me that cersei and thrift store pirate are the big bads 
to end the entire show, but there's a modicum of hope left since the show is focusing on politics, even if that was never the overall vision of George R. R. Martin. You talk about disservice to characters. They, Euron's character himself, compared to what he is and from the source material, is so bad. I mean, what is Euron in the books? He's more like a um, necromancer. He still sails on silence, the name of his boat, and because he cuts the tongues out of the crew. He's in the mystic arts. He comes to the king's moot. They're going to try to promote a new king of the Iron Islands, and he shows up in silence, and he has this gigantic drag. Dragon horn. It's called the Shadow Binder. He's basically a Shadow Binder who can pull a dragon to his wheel. And I think that's what Rhaegal getting killed by Euron really is. I think that there's going to be multiple dragons in the books that are going to die. See, I don't have a problem with Rhaegal dying. That's the thing. Oh, I, I don't expect, either. It's I, the way yeah. he died. Yeah, exactly. That's that's. It had been poetic were, for him to die by his dead brother. That yeah, been they just, just that's been fine. Fine. Or but, Euron you know, with the horn that you're describing. That would yeah, be cool. Yeah, but but so he they, they, there's theorized that that Euron will steal, from the lack of a better term, he Jack Sparrow, one of her dragons. He actually ascended Victorian, another cut character, um, another uncle of Theon's, over to Daenerys, and they have actually uh, in some of the preview chapters for. The Winds of Winter, uh, Tyrion's chapter, when he's still be- being a survivor and surviving, escaping slavery, for lack of a better term, and he hears the Iron Men have entered Slaver's Bay and they've they've taken the slavers by complete surprise. And it's funny because the Iron Islands will take slaves too, so the slavers getting attacked by slavers is kind of hysterical. And also, Victorian fights in full battle armor, fighting ship to ship with these huge double-bladed axes. Tyrion starts laughing when he hears that the Ironborn are here, he said, because the slavers have no idea what's about to happen to them. Euron is more of a player. Melisandre sees, and people that see that have prophecy, they see visions of him, and he's a one-eyed kraken sailing on a sea of blood. That's so, awesome. Yeah, well, he's a, he's incredible. He's an incredibly dark character. He uh, sexually abuses his younger, another younger brother, another one of Theon's uncles. Arian is his name, uh, or Aaron. I, you know, I always say Arian. Here's another sample chapter from uh, Winds of Winter. It's another one about, it's basically the tale of that. It's awful. I mean, it's just, he's just so dark. Um, he might be, along with Varys, who Varys is a completely different characterization now. They might be the two most dangerous people in the whole world. Littlefinger included. Littlefinger's still alive, obviously. Final bowl of brown, and it's bad. And I saved it for my last soapbox. It's going to take me a minute. I typed this one out, too. Benioff said in the inside the episode, as much as Jamie loves Brienne, he has almost an addiction to Cersei. Unless there's an about face here, that storytelling choice would be far and away the most egregious for me. Here's a good summation from The Ringer. Quote, He's always had some semblance of honor nestled deep beneath that gold-plated armor, at least enough to rescue Brienne from a gang of Bolton rapists or his brother from an imminent execution. The day he broke his oath and slayed the Mad King, Jaime has been consumed with an undying guilt and the assumption that he's evil. His assumption of evil, that was the end of the quote, his assumption of evil has led to Jaime oftentimes giving in to his worst impulses. Exhibit A, banging Cersei beside the oldest son Joffrey's dead body in the Sept of Baylor, but heading to Winterfell to fight for the dead was supposed to be Jaime finally making the choice for good and leaving Cersei. That's why losing the army of the dead so early in the season was tough to swallow. The fight against the dead brought the realm together against a common enemy, 
rendering all the petty political squabbles meaningless, which was the overarching theme of the series in the books. Yeah. Now that the Night King and his army are gone, we're left with nothing more than character regression here and a return of tropes the series forever fought to subvert. That is, until these writers, these show writers, ran out of book material and turned, oh, I don't know, Brianna frickin' Tarth into a spurned rom-com chick betrayed by these writers, too. She was never into all that nonsense. She had the greatest moral compass on the entire show. Even before she was knighted and officially made into a knight of the Seven Kingdoms by Jamie, she was the most tried and true knight there was. But listen to her now. You're not like your sister. You're not. You're better than she is. You're a good man and you can't save her. You don't need to die with her. Stay here. Stay with me. Please. Stay. She's hateful. And so am I. <laughs> uh, what? If he goes back to standing beside Cersei, then all he did from the third season on, including knighting Brienne two episodes ago, was for absolutely nothing. It'd be nearly impossible to salvage goodwill with the many, many critics. Not just me. There are many others out there. If you ruin your own characters in service of subverting expectations, Jamie can't really fall back into the same trap with his sister, right? That can't be where this was always going. In the books, it's the same way. It was always leading for a redemption. The last thing you see is that um, she writes the letter. She's being held in the sept of Baylor. She writes a letter saying, help me. I love you. I love you. All this stuff. And he burns the letter. And that's the last time you see him. He disappears with Brienne, actually. That's the last time you see Jamie Lannister. The last time you hear Jamie is that he disappears with Brienne. That's the last you hear of him in The Winds of Winter. I mean, in The, um, in the Dance of Dragons. The theory is that they're going to go see Lady Stoneheart because Brienne's going to take him there. But it's generally thought of that he will they're theorized that he will be it'll be a redemptive arc not a redemption arc because i don't think he'll get full redemption um and maybe jamie's going back there to um killer maybe he said those things to brienne to protect her to keep her in the north and make sure she doesn't follow him but i've said this before i'll say it again we're operating under orkham's razor now the most obvious answer is the correct one he's just going back to cersei I think so, too. Benioff said the inside right. the episode he has an in addiction to Cersei. That's a fundamental mischaracterization, I think. They did that the last time when we, you know, we said that you, you, you talked about regression. We talked about Jamie going back to her the first time and doing it and how stupid it was. And then how they kind of got away from that. To have them go back now would just be a real thumb in their nose at the audience, really. Or, again, to do what they set out to do, which is instead of something coherent narratively speaking they do it because it's unexpected uh, m night Shyamalan, they they by slot of hand poor m night Shyamalan. well i mean you know he's he's the, he's the guy yeah yeah he inserts twists instead of storytelling south park got it right when they were making fun of him and they were trying to figure out imagination how to get into imagination land and that's the one they said that they didn't understand michael bay only knew spectacle and they've gotten to the michael bay m night Shyamalan. They did both of those traps. They had a bunch of explosions and a bunch of dead people and a bunch of spectacle with a bunch of twists. And I think that makes good storytelling and it doesn't. 
a few supplemental bads, then it's time for rapid wildfire questions. Okay. The dead Dothraki soldier obviously breathing as he laid on the funeral pyre. Nah, in the that's just, you know, that's, that's all right. Come I on. mean, that's, that's, again, that's just laziness. Come on. Brienne's disappearing black eye. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The Starbucks cup. And then lastly, and this is a legitimate gripe, because the other stuff, it happens. Gendry Rivers? He was born in King's Landing. Wouldn't he be Gendry Waters? Mm-hmm. Maybe because... Uh, he was found in the Riverlands. I don't know. I mean, the Storm's End isn't there. No, Storm's End is a uh, is a different one too. They have different names. From Dorne is Sand. Obviously, the Sand Snakes of the most the most famous. The Vale is Stone. It's actually Elaine Stone is who Sansa disguises herself as 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 Peter Baelish's bastard daughter. The North is obviously Snow. It would seem like they would get it right, but they just um. <laughs> I said, like, sometimes it seems like these guys don't even care or watch their own show, which yeah, wouldn't surprise me. Come on, man. Or, and, you know, they could, obviously, could have, we don't know what their corporate influence is like. We don't know what HBO, they focus group stuff, and they'll see that Arya needs 15 more minutes of screen time. So they have to come up with a different scene. I used to think, why are we watching Grey Worm and Masande? When I really didn't, I, I should have been more cognizant that, that could have been some focus group's idea of what a good scene was like. So they added this 15-minute awkward sex scene between a eunuch and Masande, who's now beheaded. But Gendry Rivers, that's a small detail you got to get right. Uh, I agree, but they don't. They didn't do yeah. it. Okay. Rapid wildfire questions. I've got a handful. Here we go. Sansa was smart to be cautious with Danny at first, especially when you consider the family history of their respective houses. The Bad King burned her uncle and her grandfather alive in the Red Keep, but now Danny didn't have to go north. She did anyway at the request in boning of John. She even fought in the battle herself. She wielded a sword, took out much of the enemy atop Drogon. Sansa... And, atta- and, and successfully attacked the Night King, the first person successfully attacked the Night King. Right, and then Sansa the whole time was in the crypts. An episode later, and after everything Danny has done for her, she still refuses to remotely accept her for plot reasons why her you know she loves your brother that doesn't mean she'll be a good queen you seem determined to dislike her a good relationship between the iron throne and the north has been the core of every peaceful prosperous reign we've ever known john will be warden of the north so a good relationship seems likely don't expect him to spend much time here going forward. Well, I suppose it's up to him. Danny's shown she can be trusted now. She's not asking for forgiveness for her father. Then Sansa lied to John after swearing to protect the news of his parentage in the Godswood. A secret, it should be noted, that Ned Stark kept for 18 years. This is why I didn't tell anybody. Why is she not trusting Danny at this point, other than they're doing the same thing, they're making the same mistake they did last year, last season? With Arya and Sansa. That, the latter part of what you just said, they're drama for drama's sake. Number two, can we drop the motivation of Cersei loving her children? How does that supersede all the other awful things she's done? Just kill her already. Because that was supposed to be her last connection to humanity, was losing Tommen. And so this whole contrived kid storyline doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah, stop trying to use that. Mm Mm-hmm. That's what made her blow up to Septa Baylor, is because she thought she was would politically make her safe. 
she didn't care. At the end, by the time Tommy killed himself, she'd already knew. She already knew what was going to happen. What made episode ten? Was that that was episode ten, right, of season six? Yeah. It would it would cheapen that, but it wouldn't surprise. I mean, it, at is this point, sept, does anything surprise you? Is the sept of Baylor being blown up by Cersei via wildfire something that's foreshadowed in the books? Obviously, Jamie talks about the wildfire. It, has, it hasn't come up quite as uh, frequently in the later books. It comes up all the time. What would be season two? It would be Class of Kings when the Battle of the Blackwater happens and when all that wildfire's out. And so you get really a background of what wildfire is. So Jamie is reminiscing about his Ares tenure, and he's describing Ares tenure to the Kingsguard and watching him descend into madness. And the only way he could ever get aroused was by watching people burn alive. And when he burned the previous hand of the king alive to replace him with the pyromancer, um, yeah, he had to listen while he uh, ravaged his own wife, who would be Daenerys' mother, and it would be his own sister. And like I, uh, I described previously, he had become disgusting. He had this uh, long, scraggly nails and long, scraggly hair. He looked like a crackhead because he was so paranoid. talks about Jamie's motivation, about why he did it, about what, what Ares as the Mad King was like. He talks about the pyromancers being the chief ones, and that's the way the wildfire came from that killed Rickard Stark. He talked about Sansa's uncle and grandfather. Uh, he was roasted alive in his own armor. Rickard Stark was while Brandon had to watch, choke himself to death, trying to save his father. And uh, it's really the episode that started Robert's Rebellion, because not only did he do that, he sent a raven to John Aaron, whose death starts the entire series, demanding Robert Baratheon and Ned's heads. They were fresh-faced 18-year-olds at the time. They were about to be done being fostered. Number three. It's hard to imagine the Lord of Light and George R. R. Martin's purpose for bringing John back to life was to rush kill Danny. Arya could handle that. She sneak attacked the Night King with that hell of vertical. Or was John's resurrection the instrument in bringing everyone together to defeat the Army of the Dead? Because that tracks better. The problem is, now that the dead are gone and didn't put up much of a fight, he's kind of just there to fill whatever his final plot purpose is for these terrible showrunners. So... Will John's resurrection be explored in any meaningful way? If he if he kills Dan, Daenerys, like I think they're foreshadowing, maybe he goes off back to the north. Maybe he has to reclaim the north, or there's a new night. There's always going to be a Night King kind of recurrence. You know, they've talked about eternal recurrence. I don't think those rumors get started without some kind of basis and some kind of spoiler. So I'm pretty certain that they, they, they might try to do something like that. That if John goes back north or goes back to retire to wherever he's supposed to go, I think ghosts going north really foreshadowed that. Like, you know, that you belong in the north, you got the true north in you. I don't think John's going to end up on the throne or in any leadership capacity. I don't think he wants any part of politics. I don't even know what his real purpose is going to be in the next battle either. I think John being Aegon Targaryen is going to mean nothing. Oh, man. Number four, Targaryens. Mm. As the only dragon riders is a show creation. The reveal of John as a Targaryen, which book readers and show fans alike had all but accepted before the truth was presented in the show, brought about a ton of possibilities, the most exciting of which was him riding Rhaegal, named after his father, Rhaegar. 
But what's the significance of John and Rhaegal now that Rhaegal's dead? All John and Rhaegal did together was burn some weights in episode three and tangle up a bit with the Night King. What's the significance now? I don't think there's any significance. I think it just is what it is at this point, Ben. Oh, man. These are not the answers I wanted. All right, number five. <laughs> John doesn't want the throne. The Azora High Prophecy doesn't exist really in the show, apparently, unless you accept it as John, Danny, and Arya together defeating the Night King. So the biggest right. reveal of the entire series, the question the entire story is built around John's parentage, the show, it's really going to be nothing more than a trigger to further send Danny down her path as Mad Queen. That's it. Or she could be Nisa Nisa in that whole scenario. You're not really buying prophecy ever happening anymore in this show. I don't think so. I don't think they'll go that way now. I don't think they'll um, delve back into that. I think it'll be more answering the question about what happens to the big to the big seat, whoever's going to be killed at the end here, and then have it out. If Tyrion lives through this, if he doesn't get executed, which, I mean, he could definitely get executed. He deserves probably to get executed because he's been so bad. He's taken L's everywhere in every single turn including the army of the dead if he's on a council why would you trust him why would you trust bran bran could have saved you so much hassle what is the what does his purpose serve i have no killing 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 him would be a mercy at this point what is bran doing there's been absolutely no setup to make him relevant like use his abilities in war or somehow bring back the night king for whatever that means what is he doing if he resurrects Rhaegal, because you know now that would be Jon Snow and his dragon, you know, resurrected, that could happen. Probably not, though. Number seven, Melisandre in season seven told Varys she had come back to Westeros because she's meant to die there, as is Varys. Here's the clip. So where will you go? Volantis. Good. If you don't mind my saying, I don't think you should return to Westeros. I'm not sure you'd be safe here. I will return, dear spider. One last time. My lady. I have to die in this strange country. Just like you. The rapid wildfire question, Maester Daniel. It's crystal clear. Varys is being set up to flip on Danny. So his death will be by treason at the hands of Danny. And if Mm -hmm. so, what was the character motivation for Varys? He's been consistent in saying he fights for the realm. It would make sense then for his death to be another contributing factor in John doing what needs to be done in the end, however rushed it may be, kill the Mad Queen. Is that yeah. fair enough for him? I think it's, I think, well, I mean, no, because they've castrated his character, pardon the pun, in a lot of ways. Fair, yes, because uh, I think you I think you're right, he'll be executed, beheading, getting roasted, getting hung. Uh, getting hung. Tyrion better so, not suffer the same fate. He could. Anybody's left on the table, they could die at any time from a random rifle shot out of a cannon that's mounted on a ship. It was so out of character for Tyrion to be so mean-spirited to Brienne in regards to her virginity. There was lots of people acting like him. Braun, Braun acting out of character. Oh, yeah, I've got a question about Braun. How does Braun stroll into Winterfell if nobody (laughs) notices him? It's all right. He's he's just a ninja now. He's like Ramsey Bolton. He's just be whatever he wants to be. Yeah, that's one of my other rapid wildfire questions we'll get into in a second. But Tyrion's shown himself to be a much kinder person than that. There had mm-hmm. to be a better way for the writers to get to oath sex than just betraying who Tyrion is. And oath sex was whatever for me. I pick my battles now with this show. But Jamie and Brienne's love has always been subtle, complex, unspoken. There, there's much more dimension and tension there. 
He loved her in a much deeper sense, right? It's like the show has completely forgotten the complexity that made it so amazing. But whatever, did you have a problem or did you have any issue with oath sex? <laughs> no, not really. Uh, I thought it was cheesy because um, I think the if you wanted to talk about writing that would subvert expectations, it would be her to reject the man that Brian's she loves at one point. Uh, or you don't, or you have her go after Tormund, who's just who's really in it because I think that he really loves her, the one that kind of gives her the passion. And then he did what she wanted. She she left. You know, he respected her wishes, respected her choice. So. Tormund's the best character of this whole free, show. Man, free folk, man. It's a free folk. Number seven. So John, upon killing Danny, won't end up on the Iron Throne. He'll probably be exiled either by a ruling party under his own volition. I'm guessing. Here's the clip of Tormund saying goodbye to John and says, you have the real North in you. Mrs. Farewell, then. You never know. You've got the North in you. The real North. So if John goes North to reunite with Tormund and Ghost, who he does not deserve anymore, what could he do there? What's the end game for John? Honestly, I don't care. If he's not on the throne, why make him Aegon Targaryen if that means nothing? <laughs> we talked about it when they first started foreshadowing it. We started doing the spoiler. The, and we talked about the spoiler of all spoilers. The central question that he asked them when they first started doing this show was, who is Jon Snow's parents? And they are going to do this with it. Make it nothing. Yeah, he's going back north. Number eight, Tyrion mentioned Cersei's pregnancy twice in his attempt to negotiate at the Wall of King's Landing. Euron had to hear that. He'd have known that Tyrion being privy to such information, the same information that Cersei only recently shared with him, means that Cersei was pregnant long before they did it, that they went to town on each other. But there was no reaction at all from Euron. Shouldn't he be suspicious? Like, hold up, wait, what? What? I think that's just, I think you're thinking too much about terrible dialogue, Ben. So no playing it out as no, no, I don't like think so. a double cross of the Golden Company, none of that in order here. Well, maybe, but that that's not, again, it's not subtle enough because, you know, like you said, if you, they do a betrayal now, why didn't he react? Yeah, Euron's think, not subtle. No, there's nothing about him that's subtle. Cersei's pregnancy brings about a problem for pacing with me, and it's been a problem for two seasons, has pacing. There has to be a constant. It could have been Cersei's pregnancy. Of course, she's not showing it all. It takes no time to get from Winterfell to King's Landing or Dragonstone or anywhere on the map for that matter and back. But we don't have any idea how much time has passed, what day it is. Cersei's pregnancy was revealed late last season. She told Euron she's pregnant. Tyrion acknowledged it. Okay, she's not showing. She's either not pregnant and lying or time doesn't matter. And these characters just have the ability to teleport across the map. Unless babies in Westeros gestate at a different time than normal humans. It's disorienting. You said it when you opened. That you said that uh, they would go for spectacle and style over substance. And they're sticking to their guns. They're sticking to, what the, they're sticking to that horse. Wish they had these time machines in season three. Arya could have made it to Robin Cat. Maybe they go back to the northern and take their northern forces with them to Winterfell. Don't ever have to get in there and get involved with House Frey, jetpack to King's Landing, pull a Euron stealth move, steal Sansa from the court gardens, poison Joffrey themselves, end it all. Steal the Iron Fleet. Yeah, why not? Warp over and steal it. Yeah. Warp back. Why not? Mm -hmm. Time doesn't matter. Time is only a concept. 
now you sound like Russ Cole from True Detective. Yeah. Number nine. Time is a flat circle. Man. Man. All right, we've spoken at length here about character regression. Further examples, Sam reverting back to being a spastic coward in Long Night. Another, the build-up to Arya and Sansa finding out the truth of John's parentage only to have the reactions happen off-screen. Then Sansa can't keep the secret Ned did for 18 years. And then Hot Topic Jack Sparrow is the super-powerful big boss villain. Bronn is back to being a one-note selfish prick. He was uh, able to just, like, stroll up to two high-ranking officers of Danny's or the Stark's armies with a Lannister crossbow like it was nothing. Were there no security guards? Did any of those really irk you, or am I nitpicking too hard here? No, all the Unsullied saw him because he fought in the battle against him when they fought the Lannisters. Again, did those people forget? They just forget that they existed? Which, sure, I guess that's their excuse in the storytelling is that they forgot about the big armies they're supposed to be fighting. How am I supposed to cheer for somebody who's so ridiculously stupid? Oh, right. This is this podcast is going exactly like I didn't want it to, but well, I, I mean, it's not like it's just you know you don't. What can we do? Nothing. Number ten. Why didn't Danny just attack the Red Keep when she arrived in Westeros? Tyrion, stupid Tyrion strikes again. Take your three dragons, Dothraki, Unsullied, go into it immediately. House Lannister was, and then you can get the defeat House, the, and then you don't carry a dragon north of the Wall, so it makes season seven pointless if you did that. I loved what Jason Concepcion of The Ringer said about this particular criticism. Danny might, if her advisors were any good, have sowed discord in the Westerlands by offering Casterly Rock to the first upstart lord willing to come to her side. She could have used Storm's End as a bargaining chip early in the campaign, thus creating an ally willing to fight for her while she pursued Jon's aims in the north. Instead, even though she had Tyrion and Varys in the fold, she didn't play the political game at all. A grave mistake. Or bad writing. Which one would you lean towards? The guys who write eunuch jokes and dick and ball jokes into every single episode? You decide. She could have waited out the Night King, told Johnny Kick Rocks. They all die. She deals with the dead when they get to the Red Keep. But she doesn't go well, did they ever? Because... Did they ever get to the Red Keep if she, did, if she goes straight to the Red Keep? Because they don't have a dragon. They can't knock down the wall. They don't have a dragon. Yeah. They're just gathering around the wall. They're just going to kind of go stare at it. But we don't know because we're never going we're never to find those answers out. This is a lost. This is the lost ending. Hmm. Oh, yeah, that sound, that sound is inevitability. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, <laughs> like Mr. Like the Agent Smith told Neo. It's inevitability. Will we ever see Nymeria again? No, unless uh, they do some sappy epilogue, which I don't think they're going to do. Last one. How much of the end game? as it's played out on the screen, do you think happens in the books? Is this really George R. R. Martin's ending? No, I think that when they say he gave them the ending, I think that's, that's hogwash. You think that a guy who's written and then rewritten over years and years and years, I mean, this series started in, I think, 89 is when he got the concept. I mean, it was forever ago when he first thought up the sequence of them finding the dire wolf puppies. In one, in one copy that he sent when he first, before he actually published um, there was like a, there was a love triangle with John and Arya and uh, one and one other. I think it was Daenerys and that oh. just you know yeah. So uh, to say it's his ending, I think is um, I think it's just what he envisioned the ending would be like. I think it's John killing Daenerys or Arya killing Daenerys because those three characters are one the the ones he really latches onto. All right, that's it. That's, that's it. And that's all. That's all. Look, there's been a criticism of me 
that I'm either nitpicking too much or when I mention the betrayal of character arcs, cough, Stephen Willis, cough. I'm like butthurt or something because they're not <laughs> ending the show how I want them to end it. And that's not true at all. I had no expectation for how it was going to end. I don't care. My wishes were simple. Coherence. Danny went full mad queen at the death of Masande, but not Viserion or Jorah or Rhaegal or Drogo or entire Dothraki horde or her Unsullied or Sir Barristan. Instead, we've got D&D here leaving Game of Thrones behind. They're writing in deaths and drama to spike up numbers for the finale instead of meaningful character development. And that's why some of us aren't feeling it this season. It's not because yeah. it's, oh my God, my theory was wrong. You know, you know what it is? It's There's a difference between theorizing and not getting the ending you wanted. I never wanted a particular <laughs> ending. Speculating was just always fun for me. I think you're using too many words to basically sum up and say that they're going to make Daenerys' three episode heel turn here at the end the same kind of heel turn that Alan Anakin Skywalker did where he's a Jedi and all honorable and he has a few bad dreams and he turns into a child killer 30 minutes later that whole sequence cheapens Darth Vader as a villain the same way that this is going to cheapen Daenerys as a character and, and make this whole show unrewatchable I don't blame them they didn't want to do it for 15 years but hey you know uh i thought they were going to give brienne uh some redemption from her how she was treated in star wars but all oh, they dnd decided they would take care of that too maybe they'll end up writing her show on disney plus and you can watch them do to the, her character in star wars as they did their character in game of thrones make her a blubbering mess but that's what it is it just it, they don't they don't earn daenerys turning into the mad queen they they didn't give you the setup that it's not the emotional payoff. It, it's Anakin Skywalker and the prequels turning into Darth Vader. I've still loved this show. I mean, the love the show as a whole because of the early seasons, but it's just one of those shows that just petered off at the end. Like a lot of great seasons. It's hard. It's hard to make great tele- television for a long time. It's hard to close things out, but, but they had an opportunity to, um, even with all the mistakes they made in the earlier seasons, which they did a lot of, if you go back and rewatch them, they at the end they were not good they're good at adapting they're not good at creating unfortunately i'm going to watch the show again and again and again in the many years after this but for me the series will end with the shot of danny setting sail for westeros that would be acceptable in honestly you could say episode three would have been the end of it if they had survived the night king this is that's why this feels so cheap is that you know you defeat the big bad guy after the long night lasted just one episode which people were willing to accept if you made the other stuff compelling and it's not, it's not, it's not just not compelling anymore because of the stakes and the existential threat is gone. I, you can certainly enjoy the characters. I'm glad that um, Cersei's going to die because I'm pretty certain that's going to happen unless this a twist. That's a twist ending and she wins. It may not sound like it. I still love game of Thrones. I do. Complaining about game of Thrones is a time honored tradition. Just like complaining about any sci-fi fantasy. Hopefully next week we'll have, a better than not as dark and full of spoilers as far as not shit canning it for however long we've gone. No promises. I suspect, I suspect that we will, we, will, we will not keep that promise. We tried now. I really tried. I tried. You got on your soapbox a few times, though. Even yeah. Even you tried. But I, I had good bowls of brown. The tone of it was fine, and uh, the special effects were great. Soundtrack Music great was boss. Again. Yeah. Some of the transport and stuff, you talk about stuff you nitpick about. I don't care about them getting King's Landing to Dragonstone. We talked about that last time. 
the people complain about Trent teleporting. That's actually one that's plausible. They're just, they're next door to each other, comparatively speaking, when you talk about how how far these people are traveling. He's Maester Daniel on loan from the Citadel. I'm Ben of House Garrett. Eh, whatever, the titles are stupid. Thanks, man. Maybe Thanks. next week. Yeah, I'll see you next week. Then. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.